0: Here we go. Welcome to Saturday Night the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lehrhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, I invite veteran producer Julian Schlossberg back to the show to tell us about the new audiobook, Try Not to Hold It Against Me, based on his original book. Julian has spent 60 years in show business He's worked as a producer, director, distributor, exhibitor, radio host, record executive, and author. He's also my co-host alongside our mutual friend, Arthur E. Friedman, on our podcast, Tales from Hollywoodland, which is just as much fun as my podcast, maybe even funnier, although they never let me sing, which is probably a good thing. Welcome, Julian. Thank you, Steve. It's not a good thing,
1: but the singing sometimes just changes uh, with your uh, moods.
0: That's the problem. You know, I think that I'm probably a frustrated singer uh, because I sing in the shower. And I once lived in an apartment building where Jeff Dunnis lived. Now, Jeff Dunnis, for those of those who used to read or look at Penthouse Magazine, was one of their key photographers. He sublet his apartment one year to Maureen McGovern. Oh, so cool. I would hear her singing uh you know in the shower it must have inspired me (laughs) the question is did she hear you singing hope i hope not because that would have caused a a definite friction because that had no nothing to do with the fact that she moved out quickly I don't think so. I don't think so. But it was an interesting building. Uh, My neighbor was a gentleman named Austin Stoker. And Austin Stoker is uh, was an African American actor. Um, He, um, he's in battle for for the planet of the apes. So he's in that movie. But more importantly, he's in, um, he's in a movie. And I'm trying to remember the title, you might know the title. It's about a group of police officers who are are kind of under siege in New York City and it, I think John Carper. oh it's called John, Ass- assault ahead. on precinct 13. 13 that was the original and Austin was the star of that so it was it was I was a, a nobody in those days but I was surrounded by somebodies um, <laughs> by the way you you've been surrounded by people your whole life practically I don't think there's a human being in show business that you haven't met
1: well, I certainly have met a lot. And in the building I lived in in Manhattan, it's really true. Dustin Hoffman, Steven Spielberg, Steve Jobs, Bono, Tony Randall, Zero Mostel, and I could keep going on. I, I, I used to call my mother and father and say, I'm the only
0: person here I never heard of. <laughs> so in, in situations like that, I mean, I I'd I'd already be plotting about how to meet these people. Did you have some interesting encounters with your neighbors? Well, I guess we did have close encounters of the third kind. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, I did.
1: But some of them I knew, some of them I would worked with, and some of them In Dustin's case, I even got him an additional apartment in the building. So, yes, I I knew many of them before I got in. Zero, I met in the building. We stayed up. We bunked into each other uh, around 1030 at night, and we left the lobby at 430. We spoke for six straight hours. Oh, my God. It was one of the most exciting, interesting evenings I've ever spent. But I write about it in the book and try not to hold it against me. I don't write about the lobby, but I write about befriending Zero, who you call Z. He he wanted to be called Z. You didn't call him Zero. And uh was, his,
0: was his original
1: name Zero? No, it was Samuel. <laughs> Close, right? Anyhow. <laughs> Anyhow. I'm, I was a, a Paramount executive, had a limo picking me up in front of the house. Only because I was a Paramount executive did I have the limo. Anyhow, I get to the, uh, into the limo, and I go to the corner, and I hear someone screaming, Stop, thief! Stop, thief! And all of a sudden, on the hood of the, of the limo, is Zero, throws himself on the hood, and starts banging on the glass, yelling, "Stop, thief! Stop!" thief. So I get out of it. I said, "Come on, Z, let me go. Hey, let me just leave." The crowd is starting to come around. <laughs> you know, it's really the driver is hunched over. He's afraid because this huge man has pounded on the car, and uh, that was kind I'm of. I'm
0: wondering fun. if this is was is this possibly during the time he was working with Woody Allen on the front. No, it was after.
1: It, it was, was after.
0: after. Yeah. Because he's so good in the front. And I didn't realize that I guess Zero went through uh, oh. his own blacklist period. Oh my God. That was that part of
1: that evening of six hours was part speaking about that and how uh upset he was. There's a very famous story where Jerome Robbins named names, as did Kazan and Bud Schilberg and Clifford Odets and Lee J. Cobb, but uh that's generally not spoken about, but we're speaking about it. Anyhow, um, a funny thing, ha- no, Fiddler on the Roof is out of town and it's, no, s- excuse me, strike that. If you're doing some editing, let me just start again. So they're out of town with a funny thing happened on the way to the forum and they're in trouble. And they they want to bring in Jerome Robbins, the producers, but they know that Zero doesn't like him uh, because he named names and Zero didn't. But they go to Zero and they say to him, "Would you consider us bringing in Jerome Robbins to help?" And and Zero says, "That son of a bitch! I that mother! I that, that genius! Bring him in!" <laughs> <laughs> and when Robbins came in, two things happened. Zero kept recalling him, "Loose lips." Oh, loose lips is here, loose <laughs> lips. <laughs> and uh, the second thing was, he said, "Look." The audience t- takes a long time to understand what's going on with the uh, this 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 uh, comedy. You've got to open with a great number that just points out who's in this house, who's in that house, who's the hero, and that's how the song you know came. Uh, comedy tonight. Something. I'm, I'm not going to your... sing it. I'm not going to sing it. But you, I'll you do said. it. You do it, you <laughs> no, do it something peculiar, something familiar, something for everyone. a comedy tonight. Uh, yeah,
0: come on, you tell me <laughs> you can't sing. <laughs> I think I told you the story on our other podcast that we get to New York. My wife and I go see funny thing happen on the way to the forum. Nathan Lane is the star. so he comes out and he and um. He does his opening number, just like you had Zero do. And uh, then the usher lets in two people who come down to the front row who obviously missed the opening number. So Nathan Lane does a double take, looks down at them and says, what, they had a, a discount at the Sizzler tonight? <laughs> <laughs> I guess the Sizzler also is in New York, right? Because in, the Sizzler's is a big thing in L.A., you know, I, 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 of course, I know it, but I couldn't pick out a
1: Sizzler in New York City. I don't know, but then again, Nathan goes around the country, so who knows? I After all, remember, seventy percent of people who go to Broadway now are tourists. So he knew the Sizzler name, anyhow. Probably. Perhaps,
0: yeah. You mentioned earlier the title of your book. Try not to hold it against me. I remember reading a, a Jacqueline Suzanne's one of her books. Or one of her interviews. And Jacqueline Suzanne, the great novelist of Valley of the Dolls, for those of you who've never heard of her. And um, Once is Not Enough. (laughs) Once is Not Enough. And every night, Josephine, her first book about her dog. And she had a rule that when you're interviewed for anything related to your book, always start your sentence with the title of your book. (laughs) Try not to hold it against me. Uh, uh, Jacqueline, so uh, tell us about your time in New York. Well, while I was writing, try not to hold me <laughs> or whatever. You know, it's a funny thing. And I've always found that sometimes, even with actors with their movies or television shows, they'll forget to mention the name of the show. Like, why are you there? And you know, <laughs> obviously, uh, and you are such a great wreck on tour. And everybody should get this audiobook because the stories of Hollywood. First, the, the firsthand stories are so much fun. You've had so many different careers and so many different aspects of those careers. Is there a job that you would have liked to have had that you never had?
1: That's a good question. But the, the, the truthful answer is no, I, I got what I wanted. <laughs> I, I've been able to do what I wanted to do. What I had recognized, Steve, years ago was I obviously wasn't a lawyer, a dentist, a doctor. I had no degree. So I thought, well, if I want to be in show business or the entertainment business, I want to learn every aspect of it. I want to know all of it. I don't want to just know what I'm doing, which was my first job at the ABC television network when there were only three networks. And ABC was about 17 at that point of the three (laughs) because it wasn't doing very well. What year did you go to work at ABC? Uh, th- uh, 60 years ago,
0: 1964. So it was
1: a very good year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was the fifth season of combat. And I was a Tuesday night ABC addict because I watched your whole lineup on Tuesday nights. I think it started with Mikhail's Navy and, and with uh, Ernie Borgnine, and then it went to combat. Now, combat was for me... World War II history, because uh, I was, I think it went on the air in the fall of 62, I was uh, 11, and I, my dad and I watched that voraciously, a lot of fathers and sons were really into combat, and Vic Morrow was marvelous as the sergeant, and uh, unfortunately, um, although the last season, the fifth season went to color, you guys canceled it. Well, that's how we worked.
1: As soon as things started really getting exciting, knock it off the air no, but we we also had uh, the fugitive that night. Tuesday night was the only night that we we shined as a network at that point. I mean, the whole night was very highly rated. rest of the week was was not, but it was an interesting time, and uh one that I you know it's like if you want to kind of not have a degree and you want to try to be reasonably successful. You've got to learn everything you can about the business you're working in. I was always shocked at Paramount, and it wasn't indigenous to Paramount, that most of the top executives had never been on a a movie set. Or if they had, they were there for 20 minutes. They'd never gone to a mix. They didn't know what it was to take sound and put it into a movie. They had no idea about casting. They didn't know anything about editing. In those days, it was a chem machine or you know, a Steinbeck machine. So it was shocking to me. And I was supposedly for probably a half hour in line to run a studio. And my deal was going to be no one could become a vice president without having produced a movie. Had to be
0: from beginning to end. And I'm sure it's no different today. So you were brought in, I believe, by Michael Eisner. No, Barry Diller. Oh, Barry Barry Diller. Diller. Barry uh, Diller brings you in, and are you cutting off heads right away? I mean, you have that power. Uh, no, I didn't have that power,
1: and uh, I wouldn't have done it anyhow because I don't believe, no matter what you take over, that you do it right away. You have, no matter what people tell you, you have to decide yourself: is this person good or bad, or should I get rid of them? I, I, I had, <laughs> I, I had reporting to me people that I absolutely knew they knew more than I knew. I had uh, Juliet Taylor, the greatest casting director I think this country's ever had, or one of the greats. Uh, And when she came in, I said, Juliet, right now, if I gave you her credits, it's 112 movies. 112. How about hmm, Sleepless in Seattle? You know, I mean, unbelievable movies. Mississippi, Burning, all of uh, Mike, Nick, all of Woody Allen's movies. She's amazing. Anyhow, I said to Juliet, Juliet, it's great to meet you. You never have to report to me ever, ever. Just do what you're doing. Just keep me in line of what you what's going on, but you don't have to in any
0: way. I, I approve it right now. <laughs> so uh, by the way, I should tell the viewers that the lady in the poster behind me, in addition, obviously you have, Julian is the multi-Tony Award winning Susan Stroman, who um, was also on the, uh, I guess you both were promoting something when this picture was taken, correct? Well, actually, she was going to interview me at the Drama Bookshop
1: in New York, oh. which is owned by Lynn manuel <laughs> he, oh, he, uh, Yeah, it was a bookshop that was a bit in trouble. He loved it as a kid. And it's almost like a, a Cinderella story. He came in and 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 just opened it again, and, and there it is. It's one of the great tourist spots in New York. Anyhow,
0: I was there be, being interviewed by Su- by Susan. Yes. Yeah. New York is much more sophisticated because for many years we had Samuel French on the West Coast, which was the equivalent, but that closed and has not reopened. So we are we are drama book uh, 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 deficient. A paucity. Um, a paucity. Paucity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the the rule of thumb you often hear when a studio executive comes in to take over programming or or production like you did is that everything that's in development gets thrown out. And they have they, the the new guy is no way he's taking credit for somebody else's project. So he brings in his own stuff. I don't see you as that kind of guy who's throwing a lot of stuff out. Did you throw stuff out? Well, I I will
1: start out by saying I wasn't the guy that came in to head production. I was a vice president of production, but I wasn't heading it. Had I been heading it, I would never throw anything out until I read it or saw it myself. One of the major problems of the studio, but it's an understandable problem, so much is submitted that the person in charge or even some of his minions couldn't read all of it. So there are readers people who are hired to do nothing but read and give a report then to the top executive, which I had that. I had readers giving me the report, but you know, if for if it came in with a lot of credentials, if the, if it was a, something that I was interested in the filmmaker, for example, um, all that jazz came in uh, by Robert Allen Arthur, which of course was Bob Fosse's uh, project. And I read it, and uh, I thought it was good, but I, I thought it was, too, to me, it was too expensive to do, and it was a rather depressing story, even though it turned out to be a good film. Um, on the other hand, I was brought Annie by Mike Nichols as a play to put up a third uh, on Broadway, and that I really wanted to do, and I was overruled.
0: <laughs> so really?
1: Yeah, yeah. And the reason I wanted to do it, it wasn't that I fell in love with Annie, which I did when I finally saw it. The reason I wanted to do it was to be in the Mike Nichols business. One third at that time was $300,000, which, you know, for a studio was not very much money. And my argument was, let's start to get a relationship with Nichols, and this is the way to begin. But they didn't do it. Um, But, you know, it's a funny thing about the business, as you know, when you're in the inside, you see what gets passed on, what gets taken, and invariably, it's not for the reason you might think. Sometimes, of course, it is. Therefore, if someone walks in and says, "I've got Brad Pitt and George Clooney," you're gonna say, "I'll take it," <laughs> you know. But often, um, people are pressured for some reasons. Other people are behind that person. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's. Um, not as clear and clean as one would like. I don't mean it's dirty because that it's not. The, the, being in the studio
0: system, that's dirty. But this, this aspect is not. So you're brought in as a VP. Who are you reporting to? Barry Diller. Oh, so the you're director. reporting directly was, to Barry?
1: Well, that was my contract. I wouldn't come without that. The one so thing I, I had learned at, at Walter Reed and ABC, you better stick with the guy who brought you to the dance. And uh, they wanted me to talk to other people and I wouldn't do it. And then eventually, uh, not too long after, Barry called me and said, we're bringing over David Picker. And I know he knows you well. I said, yeah, he's a wonderful guy. Do you mind if we uh, augment your contract and say you'll report to him and me? I said, absolutely no problem. Because David Picker, I had had a real relationship when he headed United Artists. Anyhow, to make a long story a little longer. Uh, I had a two-year contract. At the end of the first year, um, I went in to quit. I wanted to leave. I I was unhappy. I I because I could not say yes. I could t- I could say no, and I could say I'll get back to you, but I couldn't say yes. And having run Walter Reed theaters and been been able to say yes for many years, it was a wildly depressing experience for me. So I wanted out. And Barry Diller said, "Lo, you you got to stay. I want you to stay for the whole contract." I said, "Look, we we sell with every schmuck here for fifty cents on the dollar. I'll take fifty cents on my on the dollar on my contract. Just let me get out." No, I want you to stay, and so I stayed. And uh, unhappily, uh, in came Michael Eisner, and Michael and I for whatever the reason never really hit it off. Um, and. He uh, Barry called me one day and he said, have you told Michael that you want out? I said, no, you're not letting me out. He said, yeah, but he should know. I said, okay. So I went in and I said, Michael, uh, I've been trying to leave, but Barry won't let me. Um, so, but I want you to know I'm leaving at the end of my contract. And he said, why are you leaving? I said, because I'm unhappy. He says, is it Columbia? Is it Fox? <laughs> Couldn't con- concept of happy. Was not high in his his lexicon, oh, <laughs> No, it wasn't. Columbia or Fox. It do, was
0: you, do you do you remember you um, you mentioned wanting to do Annie on Broadway? Do you remember another project you really wanted to do and they just absolutely refused? Oh yeah, it was um, it was based on a great Charles
1: Dickens book. No, let me rephrase that. It was based on a not great Charles Dickens book but a good book because Charles Dickens was a great writer. So even if he was a a lower child, it was still great writing called Bleak House. Now the title was in itself enough to change, but the cast was at that time, no kidding, Laurence Olivier, Robert Morley, uh, Michael Caine, Albert Finney, every top English actor had signed on to do it. And... It was going to, I had the right to change the title in the United States and Canada. Um, I wasn't going to change it in Europe because it was well known, the Bleak House, but not here. Um, and Barry called me in and we had to put up, oh, and we and also we had a CBS network deal. Also, before it was shot, CBS had committed to do it, to, to, to play it, if if we took it on. And so what I did was I went into Barry, said, look, uh, we can't lose. Whatever we have to put up, we're out with the CBS network. He said, how much money do you think this movie can make if we really do well? Now, we're going back 50 years, so please understand these numbers are quite little compared. But I said, if we did real well, we could probably do 12 to 15 million, which, of course, would have been a healthy profit. He said, I'm not interested in any movie no matter what, that can do that. He says, we have to get real big numbers. Now, this is almost 50 years ago. I don't even want to think about the idea of what it is now inside a studio. But in those days, even, even in those days, they wanted a home run. There was no such thing as a triple or a double. They wanted home runs or grand slams, and that was it. And my argument was, look, we release 15 movies a year. Some of them are going to lose money. This movie will at least give us a profit. So it'll help the loss. No, you're thinking too small. You're thinking too blah, blah. And I was. I was for what they Ju- were. Julian,
0: what,
1: what year did you arrive at Paramount? 76 and 77.
0: 1976. Okay, so it's not, post. Not, eight, not 1876, Mike. <laughs> so it's post-Godfather. So obviously they'd, they'd seen those Godfather numbers. And then obviously. And, lo- and Love Story. <laughs> and then over at Universal, Jaws had made more money than uh, anybody okay. could ever spend. So the studios were starting to think, like you say, let's start hitting more home runs. That's all. Uh, and Grand Slam. That's it. Going... And okay, that was all right. I just
1: wanted one or two. Uh, one of my arguments was, I tell you what, you're making 15 movies a year. Let me green light just one and I'll stay. Just give me that power.
0: Nope, you can't have it. <laughs> That's that's really putting the handcuffs on. Also, I'm curious, being a dyed in the wool East coaster, was there a cultural uh, deficit in moving out to California and being a Californian? Part of my negotiation with Barry, besides that I would
1: that would be with him, was that I would go to California once a month. I would not live in California. I had a house. I had an apartment there. But I wanted to be in New York. That's my home. That's where I wanted to live. And that's what, and uh, every other studio, because every, forgive me, for I was Andrew Warhol's 15 minutes of fame in the studio system. Every studio tried to hire me because I took the Ziegfeld Theater, which was a white elephant, we couldn't get anything, and I made it the highest grossing theater in the United States, with the exception of the Radio City Music Hall, by three. Three movies in fifty-two weeks, and they were that's entertainment, Earthquake, and Tommy. We averaged sixty thousand a week in those days, Steve. Three million a year, three million that year. Well, it looked like I knew what I was doing, and so these studios came after me. But everyone said, "We'll make you a vice president. We'll be you'll be in production, but you got to move to California." And that was the deal break. I wouldn't do it. Barry said, "I'll tell you what we'll do." Two weeks New York, two weeks L.A. I said I'll come if it's three weeks New York and one week L.A. And he said you got a deal, and that's what happened. I was always, always
0: negotiating. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me put up some more pictures here because you've you've had such a such interesting encounters with people. Um, I, I'm particularly fond of this picture as I mentioned earlier. Um, this this shot, uh, and I'll step out of the way. That's Elaine May and Alan Arkin. <laughs> Elaine looks like she's literally holding your decapitated head. Yes,
1: it really is one of my favorite shots and one of the most frightening ones, too. It really looks like I could be a bowling ball with hair.
0: <laughs> you're John, you're
1: John the Baptist. I am John the
0: Baptist. Well, I guess we could call that Julian the Baptist. <laughs> Julian the Baptist, uh, where was this photograph taken? I have no
1: idea, but we were, I was producing, I was bringing Elaine May and Alan Arkin back to theater after 40 to 50 years, if they had, they had not been on Broadway or off-Broadway in all that time, it was one of the great uh, highlights of my life, because I grew up watching the two of them on Broadway. I saw Alan in Love and Enter Laughing, Elaine in The Evening with Nichols and May, and I wanted them back up. And it was a great, great, oh boy, one of the highlights of my career, Steve, was producing that power plays. We sold out. It was one of the best. New, the New Yorker wrote, it's worth 1,000 times the price of admission. Wow. What a, what a quote, huh? Where we, did you- just, we, did, we did so well with that, that I brought in Richard Benjamin and Paul Apprentice, who came in and, and, and replaced. And they were terrific as well. It was a very high, high... for me i write about it or talk about it in the book and what's the book's title oh it's called try not to hold it against me a (laughs) producer's (laughs) life so glad you mentioned that (laughs) and it's available on audio amazon apple spotify by by
0: the way way, we we should mention and i think um by now it will have aired but you and elaine may are go are, are on turner classic movies uh talking and 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 what was the subject of your talk on the tcm an an evening with elaine may a a woman who is the greta garbo
1: of our time she doesn't do interviews she won't do interviews i remember years ago johnny carson mike douglas calling say can't you get her to do it i said no i can't i had as you know steve a radio show in new york for seven years on wmca and two years in wor and she's my close friend and she wouldn't do it. I said, well, "We'll tape it, and we can take out whatever you want." Nope, I won't do it. So the fact that I groveled and snivelled and you know <laughs> nagged her for I don't know how long, she finally agreed, and we're on uh, Friday. Well, you say that we, we're at, we're not going to be on this week. I got it from what you're well, saying. I think
0: when this this show will air on Monday, so I, I think see. you have already been on Fridays, but it'll probably replay. Um, Elaine is quite a character. I, I've listened to some of her interviews, um, or, or I should say non-interviews. Yeah. Uh, what, what do you think it is? Do you think she just has a phobia, or is she just pulling your leg?
1: Oh, she's definitely not pulling my leg because she's been off at everything, and she won't do it. No, she doesn't do interviews. Uh, Phil Rosenthal, who was a co-creator of Everybody Loves Raymond, uh, got her to sit down and do a little podcast. Uh, and I, as you saw at the 92nd Street Y, we did a, an interview. But she doesn't like them. She feels it's uh, artificial, and uh, it's just she's not comfortable doing it. And she's the only person in show business that I ever heard of that paid a press
0: press agent to keep her name out of the paper. <laughs> I, I once worked with uh, Armand Asante, who's a really a wonderful actor and um he uh, was doing a movie called The Penitent with Raul Julia. It was a little indie it was shot in New mexico and i the 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 key part of the movie is that every year this this uh group of uh kind of backwards villagers recreate the travail of Christ, including the hanging on the cross. A a local guy gets up on the cross and Armand Asante becomes that guy because Raul Julia's best friend gets sick. And it's it's a very interesting performance. And everybody wanted to talk to Armand about that experience, including the Today Show, which for me, for a little independent movie would have been a big coup. I was on the phone with him for over an hour trying to convince him to do the interview because he's in New York. The Today Show's in New York. It was it was like really pulling teeth. Some some performers just aren't comfortable being themselves. They have to have the script to do it. And you know um, Elaine though has been behind the scenes so much. I mean, she's not an actor. She's a creator. Although she was a performer with her husband.
1: Well, no, not with her husband, um, but she. Yeah, she was with, with Mike Nichols, but they never married. But she she recently won the Tony for acting on Broadway in the oh. Waverly in the Waverly Gallery. Elaine is a consummate actress, and she was in California Suite with Walter Matthau. She was in Love. She was in uh, well A New Leaf. She's fantastic in A New Leaf as Henrietta. No, no, she's uh, a great actress, and she actually taught acting as well at HB studios. So now she's an actress, a writer, a director, and probably the smartest human being I've ever met.
0: She's a true Renaissance woman. She, in, she is indeed a woman for all seasons, a woman for all seasons. That's a good title. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dustin Hoffman. Now you mentioned earlier that you and Dustin you're, there, you are together. Uh, you you helped him get a second apartment. Uh, were they connected or were they in different parts of the building? No, they
1: were connected. They they were above, one was above the other. Oh, oh. Yeah. No, but Dustin is uh, probably one of the most charming people I've ever met. You would go into a restaurant with him. By the time you left, the waiters, the waitresses, the patrons, everybody was in love. He is such a lot of fun and so kind and funny i just a very special character i like him very much and sadly we've never really worked together even though i've interviewed him for the mike nichols specials that i've done
0: right right he he lives literally uh a half a mile from me oh i drive past his house every day and uh, i i the only (laughs) time the only time i ever bumped into dustin hoffman i was at the ucla track and i have no idea what i was doing there because i'm not a runner but I was I was there and all of a sudden Dustin Hoffman is running on the track. Yes. And I think it was preparatory Marathon to Marathon Man. And Marathon Man. Exactly. Exactly. He was getting into the whole vibe. Oh yes. Well, it it is it wasn't I, wasn't that movie on your watch? It
1: was. In fact, I ended up being the distributor. What happened? Sadly, the man who was the head of distribution got ill and Barry called me in and said, Would you take over? Distribution for a while. I said, I will, but I want to go back to production. And he said, okay. But uh, so I ended up distributing a Marathon Man, King Kong, and Black Sunday, and a little movie called Bugsy Malone. So I'm sure with Jody Foster. That was it. Yeah, that was Jody. And now, Foster. when
0: you said you were the distributor, is this with your company?
1: No, no, with Paramount. I was the head of distribution at that point. I came in to take over distribution until. My friend Norman Whiteman got back, and sadly, he never did. And then Barry offered me the job, but I turned it down. I did not want to be in distribution and exhibition. I had spent many years in it, and I wanted to be making movies or at least running a studio. So I never ran a studio, even though I came close. But you have to buy the book to find out. No, you have (laughs) to buy the
0: audio book. And the name of it is, try not to hold it against me
1: a producer's we're going
0: to show we're going to show the graphic again just so you see it i'm going to show it with a different person with the gl- glorious f murray abraham there he is the book's yes. title, try not to hold it against me a producer's life which i've read i've read the hard copy version which is enthralling so in addition to listening to, to julian is very good on the drive from la to vegas i bet you you pop that audio in <laughs> it's a great <laughs> companion Yo, f. Murray, F. Murray's a good friend of yours.
1: He is. In fact, he's the first person on my new podcast. I knew you wanted to know that. And the new podcast is called Julian Schlossberg's Movie Talk. It starts, if your show is on a Monday, or let's just say it starts January 31st on Amazon and Audible and uh, Spotify and Apple and all these other places, and he's the first person That I interview, I have a wonderful lineup, Steve, of people that I've already taped: Um, Richard Benjamin, uh, Carol Kane, uh, Marlo Thomas, Juliet Taylor is going to be on, Robert Klein is going to be on. It's a
0: it's a great group of people that I'm coming back. (laughs) Well, like me, you're going to be a pod bigamist because I have my own, and I have it with you and Arthur, and now you have your own. And you have it with me and Arthur. That's right. And on top of it, I'm going to have you on my show soon. Thank you. Thank and you. I-, I would. I will be delightful. Although I don't have any great elevator stories, I have one. I was one. I was in. Um, well, don't tell in- it now. Okay, I won't tell it now. <laughs> but, but, but what I can do is to say.
1: How about those Great James Bond? The fact that you wrote the first James Bond encyclopedia? How about the fact that you wrote Twilight Zone? This incredible book on the Twilight Zone? How about the fact of the combat things? I mean even Anne Frank's cast. This man is a prolific writer and one of the nicest human beings on the planet, by the way.
0: We so have they... a mutual admiration society. We do. We do and by this time people may be running the other way. <laughs> let me put up another picture here because we were having a lot of fun as i knew we would um yes here's an interesting black and white shot of you and michael douglas now michael douglas it's the older he gets the more he looks like his dad i mean it's kirk douglas uh rekindled tell me about uh, uh the contact you've had with michael
1: well, it hasn't been much. Uh, we, we were together at that dinner. I think I gave him an award. And uh, I've always liked him. I found him charming. Lee Grant and her husband, Joe Fury, have a lot of parties in New York. And Michael would come and that's when we would have some fun together. But we've never worked together. I admire what he did with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, because he's really the person that got it made. Daddy Kirk Kirk Douglas was on Broadway as the star, could not get the movie made. They did not want him. And Michael eventually said, Dad, can I have it? And Kirk said, "Okay," And he got it made. So that's a picture of 1975. There you go. And he got Jack Nicholson. And he also, I think, I'm not sure, I think he was involved with Jane Fonder on China Syndrome, producing, I think, too, not just as a co-star. But he's a he's a a really sweet man. That, at least with my time with him. But we never worked together. It's a funny thing, Steve. You know this better than anyone. You can have a nice personal relationship, and then you work together. And what happened? What what happened to that person I thought was so terrific, or who I thought liked me? You know, so you never know till you work with them.
0: Now here's a nice photo of you with Barbara Streisand and your wife Marin. Um yes, you yes. you've known Barbara for many years. I have, and I think she's uh one of the most
1: incredible performers, but also so dedicated to her craft. And you know, she really never wanted to be a singer, you know. She wanted to be an actress. She only did singing in order to get jobs, but she did not want to be a singer. But I'm so glad she turned out to be a singer and an actress in that order perhaps i don't know but she also is one hell of a director as uh we found out too oh, talented uh, y- and a very special person
0: oh absolutely absolutely you you've really been connected to a lot of people i always think there's a bit of an advantage in being an east coaster because um you you Encounter people on the street and theaters, et cetera. And there's, there seems like there's more of a social activity involving people that you don't see in LA. In LA, you drive home and you stay home.
1: Well, also, the problem in LA is that you're in the car more than walking. Right. right. And, yeah. you know, in New York, you're walking on the Broadway area, for example, you're going to bunk into, you know, three or four people you know uh, at least uh, every time you're there. So, uh also i don't know uh i liked i liked the weather in la when i was there i i lived in brentwood and i i the very first cold day in new york i would get on a plane and go to la it didn't matter what the day was (laughs) and you you know the crazy thing steve it was always around christmas you know you think oh it must have been the end of november beginning of december middle of december no It never was. It was Christmas Day, Christmas the day after, and of course when I flew, the plane was basically empty, and the stewardesses couldn't stand you because you were the reason they couldn't be with their family or friends. So it was not necessarily the nicest group of people serving you at that time.
0: Uh, Since we have the luxury of playing a little clip from your book, why don't you set up the clip? We're going to watch a little bit of uh, of try not to hold it. We're going to listen to try not to hold it against me. So tell tell us what the clip's all about.
1: Well, the clip, it took uh, a chapter before I talk about co-producing and co-directing for Warner Brothers, a movie, a concert movie called No Nukes. The only movie to this day, I think, Bruce Springsteen ever made. It was Bruce Springsteen, Jackson Brown, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Doobie Brothers. I mean, it was Bonnie Raitt. It was an incredible cast. And uh, I was then uh, going to meet a fabulous, fantastic, famous woman writer, and that is the background for it. Okay,
0: hang on one second. Was, was it something? Was it something I said? Steve? I, I, I put her on the chair because I can't hold Kimmy and talk to you at the same time. Okay, so we are going to run a clip from "Try Not to Hold It Against Me." Yes. I wanted to produce
1: a film based on a novel by Dashiell Hammett, Red Harvest. The Hammett estate was controlled by Lillian Hellman. I had never met her, but since we had mutual friends, they arranged for me to visit her in a hotel suite in Los Angeles. I arrived on time and was shown in by a lovely female assistant. The assistant said she was so excited to meet me as she was a big fan of no nukes. She was in the middle of describing one of the highlights of that film when we heard a voice screaming from another room, He's here to see me! I was quickly ushered in to see Miss Hellman. We talked for a long while. Sadly, the property I wanted was already under contract, but I enjoyed her company. She smoked continuously, coughed a great deal, and was quite funny. That was my only encounter with Lillian Hellman, but it wasn't the end of her impact on me. Three years later, she died, and then, strange as it may seem, she came into my life almost on a full-time basis, as you will hear.
0: That was really interesting, you know, uh, uh, the the idea of acquiring rights to something I, is very close to me because I am constantly trying to to find rights and and trade them into different properties and in addition to do, doing my own original writing, the rights situation is always an interesting one and I've dealt with some real charlatans. At oh, one yes. point, I tried to get the rights to one of the great World War II movies produced during the war. It was called A Walk in the Sun. You probably oh, remember. Yes. Oh sure. I do. Dan- Dana Andrews, I Dana think. Andrews, uh, yeah. written by Harry Brown and uh, uh, directed by the great Lewis Milestone. And yeah. the guy who ended up selling me the rights or option, letting me option the rights turned out to not have the rights. So- oh, yes. And I actually know who that is. But we won't say his name. Okay, we won't talk on the air about it. That's right. Well, this has we'll- been terrific. I mean, uh, Julian, uh, you are such a... I talked about... Uh, Elaine being a Renaissance woman, but you are a Renaissance king. Oh you have
1: well, well thank you, uh Steve Areno. You know what I feel about you and your <laughs> and your you and your books.
0: <laughs> Everybody you've been listening to or you've been watching Saturday Night at the movies, we're gonna be on YouTube shortly. Um I I I just have to say, if you like the show, please. Subscribe. It's absolutely free. And there are very few things that are free in life anymore. Being a part of this show is free. You can also find us on Facebook where I, I do a terrific uh review every week of classic films. I should say I think they're terrific. You may not, but I always try to bring out some interesting films. That uh that uh Facebook page is Stephen J. Rubin's Saturday Night at the Movies and julian and arthur e. friedman and i we co-host tales from hollywood land which is another terrific podcast where you have three times the fun because there's three of us <laughs> and uh, just and go out and either get the hard copy copy of try not to hold it against me or find the audio copy for those long treks because julian will keep you company with some great stories well thank you very much steve and I hope you and Kim will be very happy together. (laughs) Thank you. Have a great day.